Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's where you can find details of our online events, including on February 2nd, a conversation on the right, Russia and Ukraine with David Frum. Coming up on the show today, Brendan Sims and Charlie Lederman, authors of the new book Hitler's American Gamble, Pearl Harbor and Germany's March to Global War. Uh, Brendan, Charlie, welcome to Bookstack. Hello. Thank you, Richard. Hi. So what was Hitler's American Gamble? So the focus of the book is on the period after Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor on December the 7th, 1941. And so the gamble that Hitler takes is um, on December the 11th to declare war on the United States. And in the established narrative on this, um, most of sort of the conventional popular understanding of this moment is that Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor inevitably brings the United States into the Second World War and it leads inexorably to the United States fighting the war in Asia and in Europe. And what we wanted to do is to look back over those very dramatic and uncertain few days in the aftermath of Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor on what would happen after that and ultimately how the decision was going to be taken to bring the United States into the European war. And ultimately, that is a decision that's taken in Berlin with Hitler's decision to declare war on the United States. And we we take the story back and do sort of a long lead up into this on the origins of this moment. But the focus of the book is those few days, December the 7th to 11th, 1941. Yeah, Brendan, I, I suppose that, I mean, we think we know everything about Pearl Harbour, but as, as the two of you say in the introduction, that uh, the five days from Pearl Harbour to Hitler's declaration of war on the United States, I mean, they're among the most fraught, but also the least understood events of the 20th century in many ways. Yes, that's right. I mean, the only person uh, who knows what's going going to happen is actually Adolf Hitler himself, who for reasons going back uh, many years has decided that uh, this is now the moment uh, to preempt, as he would have seen it, as he saw it, uh, the United States. But for uh, basically everybody else, um, it's a time of great uh, uncertainty. It's uncertain for uh, Roosevelt uh, in particular, because he now has a big narratival problem. How does he explain the fact uh, that he he would like to uh, uh, deal with Hitler, but in fact, he's got a war with Japan, but not with Hitler? Um, For Churchill, of course, uh, it's the danger that the United States will now be preoccupied by events in the Pacific uh, and then neglect um, uh, the the threat from Hitler. And indeed, it might well affect the uh, supply of of weaponry through Lend-Lease, which you might go into uh, later on. Uh, Obviously, the same applies to Stalin. Uh, It is an issue ventilated by him immediately after uh, Pearl Harbor. Again, the fear... Uh, that um, vital supplies of war material uh, will be diverted. And it's also the case um, for the Japanese. Now, the Japanese have been assured by Hitler that that Germany will come into the war, uh, but they don't really believe it, or at least they're not entirely sure. And there are voices within the Japanese um, establishment who are saying, well, look, you know, Hitler is unreliable. Hitler despises us for racial reasons. Um, And they even fear what they call quote, racial abandonment, that is to say that um, the German Reich and the British Empire will patch up their quarrel, 
uh, and then as as white people will then gang up on the Japanese. So I mean, what, what, one of the things that I really like about the book as well is that you make it clear that there's a, a kind of a sense of uh, decision making in these five days. But but even in the period leaving up, there are so many alternatives that. Uh, Japan might have attacked Russia. Uh, Russia might have declared war on Japan. G Germany might have backed away from declaring war on the USA. Japan might have attacked Britain rather than the US. There just seem to be so many different uh, alternatives, all of which you make very clear at the beginning would have brought about a completely different world. Absolutely. That's one of the things that we, we're, we're sort of determined to, to get across in this history is to, is to, is to, is to really tease out these sort of various contingencies of what might have happened. Um, obviously, we, we the counterfactuals are sort of ever present within this, but our, our hope is that the book deals with what actually happened and the position that these leaders find themselves in, in terms of that there, there are these alternative paths and, and the leaders are aware that the, there are these alternative paths. And one of the things that I think struck us as being particularly interesting was that the world looked very different depending on where you were. Certain situations look very, very different. So if you're in Berlin looking at the ratcheting up of tensions between the United States and Germany in the Atlantic Ocean, the undeclared submarine warfare, the lend-lease supplies that are going to the British and the Americans, the Atlantic Charter that Churchill and Roosevelt draw up in the late summer of 1941, seem, from Hitler's perspective, to be sort of this inexorable sense that the United States is moving towards a war footing with Germany. But if you're looking at those events from Britain, Churchill and the cabinet are by no means certain that the United States is moving towards a war with Germany. The um, sinking of American ships in the Atlantic Ocean and the deaths of Americans on those ships has not brought about a declaration of a state of war. It hasn't led Roosevelt to go before Congress and ask for a declaration of war. If you're looking at opinion polls at that time, only about one in five Americans who leave the United States should recognise the existence of a state of war with Germany. And this has real world consequences, particularly on relation to Lend-Lease. Even if these supplies are going to the British and the Soviet unions, there's a very limited supply at this point. And the British are aware, and Churchill very much is aware, that these supplies can't satisfy all of the participants, the America's own armed forces, Britain, and then, of course, the people who Churchill calls the hungry guests at the table, the Soviet Union and Stalin. So all of these situations look very different. The, the alternative scenarios are ever-present, and it leads to a great deal of, of anxiety. And what George Kennan, um, the US diplomat in Berlin at this time, talks about as excruciating uncertainty, and that's what we try to capture in the book. Yeah, I was I was very struck by that Kennan quote. Uh, we lived we lived in excruciating uncertainty because it did seem to capture the spirit of the moment. But it is interesting, Brendan, isn't it, that the German diplomats in Washington are actually reporting back that that FDR is very unlikely to want a war in the Atlantic and the Pacific at the same time. Yes, that's right. Um, so so these. Uh experts or, or, or uh, diplomats and, and also the, the military attaché are, are actually sending um, 
quite reliable information at, at one level about uh, American capabilities, saying that um, uh, the United States is not yet ready uh, to pile in in 1941, but it will be fairly, fairly close to it in 1942 and will probably uh, come in in 1943. So that gives Hitler a sort of a timeline uh, to aim against. Um, so it's not really, but, but at the same time, they're saying that actually it's difficult for Roosevelt uh, to push through an open breach with an unprovoked open breach with Germany um, because of the constraints put on him uh, by American isolationists, which Charlie alluded to uh, earlier. So this is a decision which isn't being driven by information that Hitler is receiving from Washington. It's a decision that's been driven by a much more anterior set of beliefs and assumptions, uh, going back really to the 1920s. And I suppose the biggest one of those is Hitler's belief that the power of the United States is vast and growing. Um, and his increasing conviction from 1937, when Roosevelt makes his famous uh, quarantine speech, where he essentially targets uh, the German Reich as one of three, sort of um, one of three in an axis of evil. Um, Hitler's conviction certainly coming into uh, December 1941 that basically the United States is already an enemy uh, and that Roosevelt is really only waiting for the moment to declare war on him. And so what he is doing on the 11th of December is actually issuing a preemptive declaration of war. Um, that, of course, is wrong, um, but uh, that is the way Hitler saw it. And that that does seem to build on your previous book, Only the World uh, Was Enough, um, Brendan, that essentially part of the gamble that you're talking about here is Hitler's belief that it really is almost a sense of now or never. That's right. So the, the gamble bit uh, refers to Hitler's strategy, or which is to put it in a very flattering terms, perhaps uh, his sort of hunch or hope that uh, what he will what he can do is to tie down the United States in the Pacific uh, through the Japanese, that he can uh, either wrestle down the Soviets or, or somehow push them out of European Russia, secure um, the resources of Russia to hold out in the blockade against the Anglo-Americans, maybe deliver some effect in North Africa uh, that brings down Churchill, and then not defeat the United States, but perhaps outlast it. There's a very striking um, discussion he has with the Japanese uh, uh, ambassador in Berlin, um, General Oshima, uh, where he says to Oshima, he says, how I'm supposed to defeat the United States, that I can't tell you yet, <laughs> which is a very, very remarkable admission to make for, for someone who has just declared war on the greatest power uh, the world had ever seen. And uh, Charlie, I mean, what's what's your instinct about uh, Roosevelt? Do you think that without this uh, declaration by Hitler, would the United States still have gone to war? I think it's it's a really complex situation, and Roosevelt is an extremely complex figure to try to decipher his internal um, thoughts. It's one of those things that even those who are closest to him, as as advisors, say that that's that's something that he um, he's this sort of sphinx-like figure that, that, that there's not really a sense of knowing exactly what he's going to do. And so the debate over what, what would have happened without Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor has been sort of a, present in the historiography for some time. Would the United States have entered the war of its own volition? One of the things that we try to capture in the book is the importance to Roosevelt of national unity, the significance to him of what happened to his 
predecessor, President Woodrow Wilson, who he had, of course, served as Assistant Secretary of the Navy. And Roosevelt has this big picture of, of, of Wilson um, in the White House. His, the tragedy of Wilson, the fact that he committed the United States to something with the League of Nations the American public wouldn't support, is ever-present in Roosevelt's mind. It's crucial to him that he was going to bring the United States into another large-scale intervention in international affairs. He needs to do so with the support of a united country. So he studies opinion polls so closely, and this is something that we see even across these days, that the seventh doesn't resolve for him this sense to which the American public is going to support um, the, the, the intervention in a European war as well. Across these days, and it's one of the things that we try to recapture, is the um, position of those who were previously in America first, which of course is still active as an organization across these days, and their belief that the United States should not preempt a conflict with Germany as well. And they release a statement on the night of Pearl Harbor saying very clearly that, that the arguments against a war with Germany are no different to the ones they were um, prior to Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor. And in fact, some of them are saying the arguments against it are even stronger because one, the United States has, has provided a lot of its munitions and material to the British and the Soviets, and they want them back um, for the fight against the Japanese. And there's, a, there's, there's criticism of Roosevelt for leaving the United States vulnerable with his focus on Europe. So this is something which I think is a really important consideration. It's part of the reason why on the night of Pearl Harbor, the War Department imposed an embargo on lend-lease supplies to Britain and the Soviet Union, which has a, a huge impact across these few days, which I don't think has quite been teased out previously, because ultimately that's lifted once the United States enters the war with Germany. But over these few days, that has huge consequences and potential anxiety that this leads to in both London and in Moscow. So fundamentally, my, my sense is that, that Roosevelt, he has no intention of ever fighting an own, only a war with Japan in East Asia and, and, and avoiding conflict with Germany. But he recognises the supreme political difficulties of preempting Hitler. And so rhetorically and in any way he can, he's trying to manoeuvre the conflict with Germany closer after Japan attacks on Pearl Harbor, but his political dilemmas are resolved ultimately by the decision that Hitler takes. It's unclear what would have happened if Hitler had not declared war on the United States on the 11th or at some later date. Yeah, and that's actually one of the things that really came across very strongly to me in the book, that we've always had that sense that Hitler lets FDR off the hook because it enables him to do what he was going to do anyway. But but you you really make it clear that there is an ambiguity, a genuine ambiguity uh, in American policy, and that really we can't say for definite what would have happened. And that's something which I think we're not, we're not, we're not trying to state that if Hitler hadn't declared war, there's no way that the United States would have entered war in, in Europe. As you say, there's an ambiguity and there's a complexity about what might have happened. And the, our, our memory of this has been influenced by things like Churchill's famous going to bed and sleeping, the sleep of the saved and thankful after Pearl Harbor because he knew the United States was in the war up to the neck and into the death. But actually, as we try to show, if you look across those days, Churchill has no such um, um, sort of sense of, 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 of um, 
of, of relaxation after Pearl Harbor. He actually sleeps terribly across some of these days, and most of the observers who see him um, um, suggest that. And the other thing which I think is important is that some of um, the accounts are pointed to particular opinion polls seeming to have resolved the question on Germany immediately after Pearl Harbor. And as we show, that actually a lot of these opinion polls are conducted later than the 11th of December and only really recognise the reality after the 11th. There's no opinion polls that are actually conducted scientifically between 7th and 11th. And everything that we were able to come across suggested that the debate over the war with Germany was very much a live one in the United States during this period. So one of the things that I think is fundamental about this is, is timing. Timing is critical. If Hitler had even hold, held off for weeks or months, this would have presented the United States and Britain and the Soviet Union with huge dilemmas as to where material would go and where the focus of their attentions would be. And Brendan, you've you've talked about some of uh, Hitler's strategic considerations, but you show as well that there's ideology going on as well. I mean, is is it as simple as the anti-Semitic Hitler thinking that the United States was in conspiracy with Jews around the world? Well, that's a huge part of it. It's not the only uh, story here, um, but certainly Hitler uh, sees himself as being beset by what he calls the forces of plutocracy or international capitalism and world Jewry. These are, are uh, synonymous in his mind. Um, and these force, forces are also in cahoots with what he calls the Anglo-Saxon world. And he very specifically links uh, international Jewry, so-called, with the Anglo-Saxon world and international capitalism plutocracy. And Hitler's original hope had been that he could coexist, by his own lights, that is, with the British Empire and the United States, and that he could create some kind of condominium uh, in which the German Reich would be one of maybe three, four, five major global actors. When that no longer seems possible from his point of view, um, which is really from 1937 onwards, and then with the increasing radicalizations uh, that we've mentioned, hit, the only way Hitler can explain uh, this inexplicable uh, failure of London and Washington uh, to accept the deal that he's offering them is through the malevolent uh, influence of the Jews. And this is why, as, as we show in the book, in January 1939, Hitler issues a famous and notorious warning to world Jewry where he says, if uh, the world is plunged, plunged once again uh, into, uh, into a major conflagration, then the price will be paid uh, not by the Germans or by Europeans, uh, but by the Jews. And so uh, it's only logical from his point of view, and we stress from his point of view, we're not, we're not justifying what he did, but it's only logical, therefore, that um, he regarded the Jews uh, in the United States, uh, European Jews, particularly Western and Central European Jews, because, of course, those in, in the Soviet Union had already been uh, largely murdered. He regards them as what we call hostages, and that was the terminology of the time, uh, for the good behavior of the United States. And so once um, war comes with the United States, uh, it, the consequence on the 12th of um, uh, December, in other words, the day after the declaration, is that Hitler convenes his political leaders and he tells them, I warned Roosevelt, but he didn't listen effectively. And now the Jews must pay the price. 
So the connection between the two, between that the stages of the of the uh, so-called final solution and the German-American confrontation are very close. Yeah, we're re- recording actually on Holocaust Memorial Day, and as you as you say in the book, when Hitler declares war on the United States, he is also in effect pronouncing a sentence of death on uh, the European Jewish population. That's right, um, and so. Uh, it's it's a clear there is no uh, there's no decision in principle uh, for the murder of Central and Western European Jews before that point. Um, the decision uh, to, to move uh, uh, to that um, comes after that point. Now, whether we can trace that solely to uh, the American antagonism can be disputed, but the connection is actually made specifically by Hitler himself. And so I think we need to take that very seriously. Now, one of the things that you do in the book, Charlie, is to, to take the almost uh, an hour by hour, sometimes a minute by minute uh, approach in, in trying to unpick these things. And as, as you reflect in the book, that really what you're trying to do is to unpick inevitability and contingency. So uh, how do you actually go about doing that? And what are the what are the challenges that you faced in doing it? And why is it so important to do that? That, that was something which which right from the beginning, uh, Benz and I were determined to do because our sense was that unless we did that, we couldn't understand decisions that were taken in their totality. It was all of these decisions were being taken with a global picture in mind. And we needed to know what the actors knew and when they knew it, particularly in relation to um, intelligence, which which is sort of going across the airwaves. um, There's all sorts of of interceptions of cables. There's all sorts of human intelligence coming from uh, from spies and from agents across this period. And the question was, when did they know that certain things were happening? Did the German uh, uh, agreement with the Japanese and the Italians, which wasn't in place prior to December the 7th, when was that finalised? When did the British and the Americans know that Hitler had pledged to the Japanese that um, he would join in a, in a state of war? Could they trust that? Did they trust that? This, these are the sort of fundamental questions that we thought were really important to know and to know when they knew them. And so there's all manner of things which um, which, which change across this period, and particularly because of things like the embargo on lend-lease suppliers, it was really critical to know when those were put in place, when those started to filter through to the British and the Soviets, how that was going to impact things like the defence of Moscow, which was in a very precarious position, and with the Soviets so reliant on British heavy tanks outside Moscow, and also in North Africa, where the British were very reliant on blocks of American material. So that was one of the things that we wanted to do. And it was a sort of a challenge across the book, um, working across these different time zones that we we sort of found, found a real challenge initially, particularly as some of those time zones were slightly different to what, what they are now, the fact that Britain was on sort of double um, um, double summertime during this period um, because of productivity questions. We were trying to sort of line up these time zones and um, and, and, and also the, the actors were very much aware of the synchronicity. So when we lead up to that, that, that critical moment of Hitler's declaration of war on the United States, when he makes that speech, one, he is aware that he is going to be speaking to the whole world. So the decision to have that speech when it is, is so that the... Um, the, the Japanese can hear this before they go to bed. The Americans can hear it when they wake up. The, all of these actors are aware of the ticking clock 
and the way in which it's going to be perceived around the world. And they're also concerned about not just what their what their enemies might know, but also the ways in which their allies might trump them in some senses. So the Japanese felt they were going to be sort of let down by the Germans. But even with Hitler's speech on the, on the afternoon of December the 11th, he's concerned that Mussolini is going to trump him, which indeed he does, by giving his speech slightly before Hitler. So the timing is absolutely fundamental. And so we wanted to sort of recapture that sense of when things happened and, and how they happened. The timing and the egos too, um, Brendan. I, I was I've been very struck actually reading the book. That, that there is a there's a, a resonance with today as well. That I mean, a lot of the context you point out is the the Anglo-American world hegemony that's furiously being resisted by what you describe as the have-nots of the international system, including Japan, Italy, and most of all Germany. And and, and it just struck me. I mean, is there a resonance there today with the United States? States and the way in which uh, its relationship with Russia and China, uh, for for example, do, did you do you feel that when you look back on the book now? Yes, I definitely feel it, and you you can see it uh, in the rhetoric of the uh, Russian Federation and the PRC today that they very much see themselves as uh, people who have been disadvantaged historically uh, by the distribution of power. Uh, that they are powers who's, who are growing in the world and that they're being excluded uh, from access, from their point of view, uh, to, to, to full equality uh, on the global scene. So there's that parallel. The other parallel, of course, is that uh, the West um, today, just as um, Anglo-America in 1941, uh, is facing uh, in two directions, um, both uh, against Mr. Putin and, and, of course, against the PRC, which is very similar to 1941. And indeed, uh, in some ways, the crisis has come not where we expected it, perhaps, which would be, say, in the uh, Taiwan Straits with the PRC, but it seems to be coming uh, with, uh, uh, with Russia and the Ukraine, um, which is quite similar to the predicament that Roosevelt uh, uh, was in. Now, in terms of lessons, I think there are two, and the trouble is that they are kind of contradictory. The first lesson might be that it's dangerous to push uh, adversaries into a corner, which was more or less what happened uh, with Imperial Japan, because they then lash out, and that would seem to push us in one direction. Um, But the other lesson, and this is the one that we really um, end the book on, um, that lesson is it is a great mistake uh, to take on the West. It was a a really desperate error on the side of Hitler and Imperial Japan, which ended horribly. Um, And most likely, I think any challenge from uh, Russia and the PRC would also end badly uh, for them. It, it is interesting as well, Charlie, how this period does seem to be uh, something that, that resonates with the policymakers and leaders themselves. I noticed even uh, today in the press that the former president of uh, Ukraine, Petro Poroshenko, uh, speaking from jail, said that uh, Ukraine must act like Churchill to face Russia. So, so, so that resonance is definitely still there in the public discourse isn't it? Very much so, and particularly, as you say, the, the Munich analogy has, has been um, discussed so, so, so frequently, not just over this crisis, but as we know, over, um, over, over much of the past um, sort of second half of the 20th century and the early 21st century, and the, and the sense to which that has entered sort of the public 
um, discourse is, 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 is so widespread. It, it's something where we know the moment that these terms are brought up, that we, we, a, a certain worldview is, is brought to mind. And I think that there are there's sort of there are fundamental aspects of this, as Brendan said, that, that perhaps even more so than we realised when we were writing the book, really resonate today. This sense of narrow windows of time of of of, um, of authoritarian leaders seeing this as as, um, as these moments for their time in the sun. I think sometimes we tended to think that, um, that the challenge would come when established powers saw rising powers. Um, um, rising this was the sense that the United States would see a rising China and would look to sort of cut out its legs from underneath it. But I think one of the, the more important lesson is that when nations are rising as 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 China is and as um as um that the sense might be that their opportunity is short in order to um acquire the resources and territories that they need and that there are times as Russia is thinking today this might be their best opportunity to act. And I think we also see in relation to this the ways in which Pearl Harbor in particular has sort of entered the public realm, the sense of this inevitability that these, these great attacks sort of fundamentally transformed things, this ended American isolation. But what we try to show in the book is that actually it's far more complex than that. When, when, these, when these events happen, initially people do tran, tr- try to understand them through their existing prisons. It takes time for the lessons of history to come out. And across this, the challenge, as Brendan said, of looking in two directions, the question of whether the United States at that time could fight a war on two continents of two oceans. We now know, obviously, that the United States establishes this remarkable, unprecedented military machine. But that wasn't obvious at that time. And I think some of those same debates are being played out today. Do you focus on Russia do you focus on East Asia? Do you pivot from one to the other? And does the United States have the resources to do that? And I think some of the dilemmas that statesmen faced in 1941, both democratic and authoritarian leaders, are again playing out today, of course, in a different context, but some of the dilemmas are similar. Yeah, Brendan, I, I mean, I guess that phrase that Charlie just used there, that it wasn't obvious at the time, that that actually seems to me to be what's important about the book, that you're, you're writing, uh, it's, it's almost a masterclass in the history of decision making in real time. And I know that we need to be careful about drawing lessons from, uh, from history and so on. But, you know, I wonder, I mean, if, if President Biden were reading this book, you know, what would he take from it as he kind of game plan strategy? Uh, on Ukraine about thinking in time in that kind of way? Well, as you quite rightly say, context is everything. And of course, we are historians and not prophets. Um, And so it's extraordinarily difficult, I think, for us as historians to to pinpoint uh, a particular lesson uh, and and still still more difficult to to give advice. Um, But I... If we had to give advice, um, uh, easy though it is to say from the safety of a Cambridge um, uh, a living room, um, I think it, it would be to say to the president that um, the challenge is obviously huge, um, but that the, that the other world, as it were, the, 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 the have-nots of the global system, whatever their appetites, they also have a healthy fear and respect uh, of the West. 
um, and that should not be underestimated. So we're, we, they're probably weaker and we are probably stronger uh, than it first seems. And the, and the, the key thing here is uh, to persuade them of them of this um, before it's too late. So the book is Hitler's American Gamble, Pearl Harbor and Germany's March to Global War. It's written by my guests, Brendan Sims and Charlie Lederman, and published by Basic Books. But for now, Brendan, Charlie, congratulations again on the book. And thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you very much. That's really fun. Thank you. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. <laughs>